Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, April 17th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. I hope you enjoyed your weekend. I know I did. My wife and I made it to Bandelier National Monument for the first time Saturday, and we hiked the Falls Trail there. We saw a post from Bandelier on social media showing how strong the water is right now, and I'm really glad that we made it in time. We even saw two different groups of mule deer there, one of them walking along the creek, another chowing down on some of the new growth coming up in the main loop of the park. If you have the chance to get out there and haven't before, do it soon while the water is still flowing like it is now. It really is worth it. As for the podcast, we have three segments this week, including an exclusive interview with Bernalillo County District Attorney Sam Bregman. That's about 30 minutes into the episode, but for now, let's get into the headlines impacting New Mexicans. The Secretary of New Mexico's Children, Youth, and Families Department is leaving the position at the end of the month. Former New Mexico Supreme Court Justice Barbara Vigil took over the role in August of 2021, and the state Senate confirmed her last February. On Thursday, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham announced Vigil would be stepping down effective May 1st. The leadership change comes after the governors called the department, quote, dysfunctional in February and announced plans for an overhaul. Lujan Grisham's goal is to make the department more responsive to the needs of children and to complaints from families. The governor has also commissioned a policy advisory council that V-Hill will join for its first meeting in May. New Mexico is officially lobbying for up to $1.25 billion in federal funding for a regional hydrogen hub. We've told you on the show about the coalition our state created with Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming, working to compete for a part of $7 billion available for up to 10 hubs across the country. According to reporting from the Albuquerque Journal, the states have submitted their formal application. Many environmental groups remain opposed to hydrogen production, which often requires natural gas to operate. The Federal Department of Energy will announce the winners of the available funding later this year. The State Environment Department is offering well testing for PFAS contamination, and it's free. Testing is available to individual homeowners on a first-come, first-served basis, but the department says it will prioritize homes near last year's wildfires, specifically in Curry, Lincoln, Mora, and Roosevelt counties. PFAS are synthetic chemicals used in a variety of products, from firefighting foam to nonstick cookware, and they're also known as forever chemicals. That's because they don't easily degrade. Growing evidence suggests that exposure to PFAS chemicals can lead to cancer and reproductive problems. If you want your well tested, I've included a sign-up link in the description of this podcast. We have new reaction to the governor's bill signing deadline decisions. Last week on the podcast, I told you about several of the bills she either vetoed or stuck in her drawer and explained the major slashes she made to what would have been a wide-ranging tax bill. This week, you'll hear what our line opinion panel thinks about the governor's actions on the legislation that made it to her desk. Joining Jean at the table are Michael Byrd, a longtime public health consultant and former president of the American Public Health Association, Giovanna Rossi, president of Collection Action Strategies, and Tom Garrity, founder and president of the Garrity Group Public Relations. Now we start this week at the governor's desk where 245 bills finished their 60-day trip through the roundhouse. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed more than 200 of those bills by the April 7th deadline. And she took the veto pen to 35 and stuck another 21 in a drawer with her pocket veto power. Now, she did sign that massive tax package that included $500 rebates, a child tax credit expansion, and reductions in gross receipts for health care providers. But 
The governor scalpeled out GRT cuts for other businesses. That's a big one right there. She axed the first alcohol tax increase in 30 years, another biggie, and denied changes to the state's personal income tax system that would have helped low-income New Mexicans. Now, the governor has received plenty of criticism over those line item vetoes. And Giovanna, I want to start here, including fellow Democrat and U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich, whose three tweets were highly critical. Giovanna, I'm curious, uh, were those criticism warranted? I mean, he was reflecting others, not just him with these criticisms, but a U.S. Senator. That's very interesting to me. Was that warranted in your view? Well, I think that there have been a lot of criticisms mm -hmm. and, um, you know, Senator Heinrich is one of them, I, apparently now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's okay to voice his opinion, you know? I, yeah. I mean, everybody's got an opinion, right? Like, yeah. why not share it? Some, but isn't there a line to these things? You stay in your Senate lane, you stay in your gubernatorial lane, you know what I mean? You don't cross over, especially in the same party, criticizing someone from your same party, that's a tough one. Right, well, that, you know, there might be some uh, other information there about why um, he might be, uh, talking to environmental, the envi environmental groups, they mm -hmm. might be encouraging him. Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows? Lots mm -hmm. of things go on uh, that we don't know about. Right. Um, but you know, I think like to look at it in perspective, there uh, there were a lot of bills that she did sign, and mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so we're very focused on like all of these vetoes and everything that she didn't sign. But um, but I think looking at it as a whole is yeah. also helpful. Interesting, Tom. Uh, just to finish the Heinrich bit. He did one of his three tweets, uh, quote, I'm disappointed to see many of those efforts now vetoed, speaking about bold action to deliver for our state. Tough stuff there. The proposed alcohol tax increase I mentioned in the setup shrank throughout the session. It started at, I don't know, 25 cents of a drink before, you know, getting down to a tax bill, just a couple of pennies. The governor... Uh, Chop that tiny bump out of the tax package. How did you take that when you heard about that? Well, you know, I, I took that as the power of lobbyists. Okay. Um, lobbyists aren't, you know, it's not a bad word or anything like that. Lobbyists have uh, tremendous influence, and perhaps mm -hmm. that's what came into play on that particular issue. Mm -hmm. uh, if I could very briefly go Please. back to Senator Heinrich. Absolutely. Um, you know, he, he is not the first uh, sitting senator who has, you know, tipped the scales or has put his fingers on the scales with regards to different issues. Okay. Senator Domenici yes. uh, was also very, you know, very well known, but it is very uncommon because you have, you know, others who have been in that particular seat right. who have, you know, done all their stuff behind the scenes. It doesn't mean, you know, I mean, there's, it's, the, it's a big tent is That's what right. they say. That's and right. so, and Senator Heinrich is definitely his own person. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's pretty much true to his brand. Right. Uh, you know, as far as saying he's independent, you want to know where he stands, just ask him. There you go. And if, if you don't, then he'll tell you. That's right. So, well, uh, which I think is really good. <laughs> yeah. He has an interest clearly in stating his position and that's what he's doing. And mm -hmm. I, and, and that's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's always in a good and res respectful way, sure. which I appreciate. Sure. Um, another, Michael Byrd, another issue that met the, the slash was the uh, tax for uh, electric vehicles. Very interesting thing there. We're talking about an electric vehicle tax credit, I should say. Uh, you know, she was more concerned with continuing oil and gas profits here, some people are accusing her of, than she is of meeting her own climate change goals. That's a tough way to look at where the governor's been over the last five years, but suddenly here we are with this, with this kind of a thing. <clears throat> we also have had one of the worst fires mm -hmm. that's related to climate that took place in northern New Mexico. That's right. And that would seem to me to be a message to not just the governor, 
but to everyone here in New Mexico mm -hmm. as to the impact of climate change on New Mexico. Right. Plus, P your own PBS station has been chronicling the, the issue of, of drought, an ongoing condition mm -hmm. over the years now. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, 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 it, it kind of, a, it escapes me mm -hmm. to see that in fact there was, the governor did not take some action on these environmental proposals and, mm -hmm. and was not supportive of them. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I don't know if this makes a difference, Giovanna, but New Mexico has more than doubled its oil production in less than five years. And I go back to what I'm reading a lot online that folks are very frustrated with this governor who are in the environment business feeling like she's, you know, kowtowing to the oil and gas industry. Is that a fair accusation at this point, given what we've seen here for these vetoes? I mean, you know, Tom mentioned that uh, uh, lobbyists have a lot of power in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will say that um, it's curious. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, she just went last fall to the Egypt, you know, climate oh, um, right. conference. She did some executive orders of her own, naming two cabinet secretaries to chair a task force on environment. Right. There's no question that what, how she s feels about climate change. It's not like she doesn't believe in it or something. Right. Um, like some people, a, a vocal minority of, mm -hmm. of the population. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it is curious. I, it, it almost seems like what was passed was not what she wanted. Right. Um, but she has made efforts to, to put this task force together, to put her two secretaries of energy and minerals and the environment department together to do this task force. I don't know what the outcome of that task sure. force has been, but sure. um, it's- Well, I'll remind everybody, the state's Clean Future Act of 2022 set a goal for the state to reach 50% emissions reductions by 2030 and net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Tom Garrity, uh, I, I ask again, is this furthering to that goal? It's something seems to be a bit of a meander than a, a straight line towards that. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's, it, the, the question you pose is, is you know, mm -hmm. fun to contemplate because, you yeah. know, it, it would appear that, you know, Democrats are all against, you know, that there has been more done for the environment. Right. When in actuality, there already has been a, a lot done already. That's Energy right. Transition Act uh, is uh, really that foundational piece. But, you know, sometimes, you know, it, it being a big tent, as we were talking about, about earlier mm -hmm. is I think that you know the progressives are probably very upset that they didn't get everything that they wanted I mean they have Democrats controlling the house right. the Senate and the fourth floor why shouldn't they get everything they want and right. I think when we saw you know what was uh, transpiring in the discussion on House Bill 547 which was the tax package yes. yeah. um, you know that we saw both you know we saw a lot of Democrats who were you know saying you know what this package is just too big, right. not the least of which is John Bingaman and uh, former Senator uh, John Arthur Smith. Mm -hmm. um, you know, both Democrats, uh, both have served the government and the, you know, in different ways. Um, and they brought up some great points in advance of the governor's veto. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, what we're seeing as far as the outlet, you know, the people, you know, kind of pounding their fists, mm -hmm. they, they just wanted everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we have a veto pen. I mean, I, there was a lot of stuff in that tax package 
package that I would have liked to have seen as well. I right. would have liked to have seen more of uh, you know reorganization of the tax structure. Right. That was thrown out. Right. Um, I would like to see more support for small businesses. That really wasn't included either. Right. So you know there's just a lot of stuff, but uh, you know you got to give and take, and that's why we all have a say in the governmental process. Gene, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Getting back to the alcohol tax. Oh yeah. Um, you know. New Mexico has an alcohol problem and has for, for, for historically. And, and as someone who comes from a family who, that was impacted by alcohol abuse, mm -hmm. I'm well aware of the fact that the populations and the communities that it impacts are American Indian, Hispanic population, and, and the poor. Right. And it, it ripples across the system. It, it's responsible for, for alcohol, I mean, alcohol abuse. There, mm -hmm. there are all kinds of health issues. Mm -hmm. It's responsible for drunken driving. It's responsible for the families breaking up. Right. It's, it's responsible for many of children who are, have to go into the system, children, youth, and family systems, mm -hmm. and, and, and foster care. And the, the impact that alcohol has on New Mexico and New Mexico citizens is 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 really, right. I think, um, if criminal if we do not respond to it in an appropriate way, and by not not putting some resources into it, not investing in more in prevention programs, mm -hmm. um, all of these all of these things ripple across our systems, right. and and to not address this ensures the fact that this issue will continue to cause problems for everyone. Yeah. I'm sorry, do you have a point on that, Giovanna, please? I, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I just want to follow up because, you know, mm -hmm. you have a public health background. It's alcohol abuse is a public health problem. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that, that that is clear, you know, and then it's sort of like, okay, what's the solution? Mm -hmm. And maybe the governor, uh, you know, it wasn't enough. Maybe it was too much. It wasn't clear which side she if was. If she had said something that would have some clarity it, on that. Well, the only thing yeah. we heard was that it w the numbers weren't quite right. At least that was what was quoted in the right. paper. Um, but it also takes. I, I need to move on, unfortunately. But it also takes ten million off the table with these couple of pennies on each drink. That was going to go towards what Michael just mentioned. You know, help for families, abatement issues, all that kind of thing. That's not there now. I'm not quite sure where the governor's coming from. How you can make that up? as opposed to what was laid in front of you. you. Don't want to do 25 cents a drink, that's fine, but two cents? Can't even do two cents? I mean, something weird there. Thanks, Gene. The New Mexico Children, Youth, and Families Department is overwhelmed with troubled teens. In the next segment of the podcast, Gene and our line opinion panelists discuss the most recent installment in a Searchlight New Mexico ProPublica investigation from Ed Williams, shining a light on the state's broken foster care system, specifically when it comes to teenagers who need mental health care but aren't getting it. Welcome back to our line opinion panel. Staffers at homeless shelters called 911 more than 1,100 times for help with runaways and children suffering from mental health crises during a recent three and a half year period. And many of them were foster kids. We learned those numbers last week in a story from Ed Williams, published by Searchlight New Mexico and ProPublica. Now, the state has promised repeatedly that the Children, Youth, and Families Department would stop housing troubled kids in places that can't help them. We've covered that here at the table many times, except in extraordinary circumstances, according to them, but it's still happening anyway. Mr. Williams reveals that police are often left to pick up the pieces 
The quotes he gathered from officers are striking. Many of them know they aren't equipped to help these kids either. And Tom, do you find it extraordinary to hear police themselves criticizing and questioning a system that continually brings kids back to these shelters? When you're hearing ground zero reports from police officers, that's got to wake some folks up, it would seem to me. How did you take what yeah, you saw? And uh, there, there are a lot of items in the searchlight yes. story that definitely caught the attention, caught my attention. Mm -hmm. uh, by means of disclosure, I've done work with CYFD on uh, topics related. Uh, to this, but okay. these items, my thoughts are all my own. Um, and so, you know, I, I think what Mr. Williams did was he, he brought to light items that need to, it's kind of like a shake me to wake me kind of yes. uh, thing. Yes. And yeah, that's the definitely the negative side. It's not a, a highlight reel, not in the least, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's something that it's one aspect that needs to be addressed. Yeah. You know, the underlying, one of the underlying issues is really on the need for foster parents, resource parents, yes. and really for New Mexico to get involved. Yeah. Uh, but you know, when, when you look at that, yeah, it's very difficult. And mm -hmm. you know, for the normal New Mexican, right. I think we look at that and we're just shocked. Yeah, it's yeah. like, when, how can we treat others like this? But you know what, it's not an easy fix. It's, no, you know, CYFD point. is not yeah. Department of Tourism. It is not Economic Development Department. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, we have to have different expectations and of what success looks like. That's a very good point, that last point there. Just a, 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 on Tom's point, Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office, Lieutenant Amy Dudowitz, who you never read, quoted, in an interview, quote, it is a frustration and it is a huge concern for those of us that are answering those calls like, is this the best response that we have to offer, end quote. And Michael, again, the frustration coming out of law enforcement people should be a signal, it would seem to me, to policymakers that we're just not doing enough here. How are you hearing what these uh, law, law enforcement folks are saying? Well, if, if law enforcement needs help, then something's really wrong. Right. I mean, yeah. and, and they're not the most appropriate to be, to be addressing this issue, right. it, it, it's, it, it, what it points out to me is a failure of a system to really to, 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 to address the issues of foster children. That's right. And again, I'm going to circle back to what I said earlier mm -hmm. uh, in our conversation was mm -hmm. that I would imagine that many of these children come, are coming from families that, are, that we, we would define as dysfunctional right. and having a host of issues. Uh, some of those issues, I would imagine, are parents who are not functioning in their in their roles That's as right. positive support and yeah. parenting. Parenting, and I would imagine many of them have had have had impact have been impacted right. by alcohol and substance abuse That's as right. well as drugs. That's right. And until we really go back to the origin of where is what causes what is causing this problem that ripples across our systems, until right. so we go, we go to the to the the basis of that and address that issue, mm -hmm. we're going to continue to have this this fallout. That's right. And um, nothing's going to change. Act like it's a fire department running around right. putting out fires. Exactly right. right. Uh, Tom mentioned some other things, Giovanna, that was in the article that I thought was interesting as well. Um, some of the police officers, they're on the, they have to stay with kids for hours, unable to respond to other calls. You, you can't be having that. Is this a resource problem? Is that what's going on here? Uh, so I think there are resource issues for sure, but mm -hmm. I think what Michael said is really key, which is that it's a systems problem. Right. And so, uh, and, and just disclosure as well, I've worked with um, CYFD uh, regional managers on uh, in a different perspective from, from my work in supporting women 
uh, and professionals in the workplace to manage their stress in the workplace. So, um, but all of my opinions are my own. Um, and, and so I've seen it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question. I mean, these, the, the people that work in CYFD are uh, caring people right. who, ha- who a lot of them have social work backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I think this blaming the, those, those CYFD people is, is the wrong um, answer. And it, it really is a systems issue because yeah. if you have your leadership, which is the governor and the CYFD leadership that she put in place, who have all the right intentions and they understand the root causes and the social determinants of health and, and all of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you still see the police sitting with this teenager right. who is bound by the feet That's and right. the hands. Um, and it's horrifying. And, and the this, helmet on to right. keep the And the police themselves. are sitting there for hours. Clearly there's a disconnect with the yeah. system. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I would look there yeah. for sure. And yeah. that's a, that's not an easy fix, clearly. Good point there. Another interesting point, guys. Attorney General Raul Torres wanted, wanted, to create a new civil rights division to sue the state on behalf of children harmed by government neglect and incompetence. But the governor pocket vetoed a bill that would have made it happen. Tom, why do you think the governor uh, was so bristled at the idea of additional oversight of CYFD? Or is the issue, as she hinted, perhaps it was better put in another already existing agency? that we can manage the money and kind of get to something. But we have neither <laughs> at yeah. this point. So. Well, uh, I think you have, pro- you have some other types of progress. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, with, regard, with respect to the Attorney General, mm-hmm. um, he was able to bring to light a, uh, a conversation that there's a need for a civil rights division right. within his office. So, you know, that, you know, that I think was a, a good positive move because it created awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, in the midst of the legislative session, the governor announced in the midst of 30 different bills uh, to reshape CYFD in some form or fashion, mm-hmm. that CYFD is going to be going under her own microscope. Right. You That's know, right. when you look at the origins of CYFD, you have to go back to 1991 and Alice King. Uh, and you know there were five different departments that all had different pieces of the child welfare reform Mm -hmm. and so they brought all of those together and each cabinet secretary has helped move the ball just a little bit further you know we have Heather Wilson Mm -hmm. uh, who who did it you also have uh, a Monique Jacobson uh, and now you have Judge Vigil everybody is moving that ball forward ever so slightly and again these are not you can't make huge steps these are all little baby steps that you have to make Mm -hmm. Michael let me read you a quote here a spokesperson for the governor on the uh, Raul Torres idea, said the bill would, quote, add barriers for child victims to access resources and create confusion among entities already doing this work, end quote. Do you buy that? Something, Mr. Torres is trying to funnel this all into one place. Why would it, why would the issue be that it would be dispersed? It's interesting. Well, uh, unless there's something that's not stated, um, it would seem to me that anything anything you would do to centralize some sort of uh, control or a- activity mm-hmm. would would be a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, this may be something that's too close to the governor uh, on some level. And um, and so that might be, you know, have something to do with why she's, she's you know, looking at, askance at it maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, please. I would mm-hmm. say that um, she probably wants the opportunity to address it within her reforms and things that she announced within at CYFD rather than giving it over to the Attorney General's Office right. um, Civil Rights Division mm-hmm. idea that is a good idea and, ha- and works in other states, but 
primary goal is to uh, look at what the government is doing wrong. And, sh and I, I'm, I would think that the governor is probably thinking, well, let me try to do it first based on what I've said I want to do. Right. Um, and also, and she, uh, to interrupt you for a quick yeah. second, Giovanna, the governor also said the AG already is empowered to take on these kinds of cases right. if he wants to. That's an important uh, data point there. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good point too, Jean. And I would say um, that that was one of her main you know, points was mm -hmm. that, look, you don't need legislation to do this work. You can go ahead and do it anyway. And it's also interesting that apparently mm -hmm. there was no funding in the bill right. anyway. Well, so it's not like he's missing <laughs> any money. I right. know. <laughs> it's not like he's going to be lacking the funds that he would have had right. to do it. Um, That's a good so. point. That's a good point. Uh, just, a minute, uh, just under a minute here, Tom, um, you mentioned the interesting Secretary V. Hill took over in 2022 after Brian Blaylock resigned, remember that, uh, guys, we talked about that here, following that transparency scandal where he asked all the COFD employees to communicate via an encrypted messaging app. But Ed Williams' story is just the latest in a series of exposed, uh, you know, failures at COFD. Lots of them in the foster system. What stops this at the end of the day? Define uh, this, uh, because I heard two or That's three different point. things. That's so good. This being the overall CYFD, <laughs> is it more leadership, more oversight, a total overhaul? Well, you what know, I, should we be advocating for here? Um, I, we need. I think the department is set up to advocate for kids. Yeah. And you know, it's you know, as Ed Williams's items, you know, his story pointed out, mm -hmm. there are a variety of different issues that need to be addressed in that process. The cooperation and integration with uh, law enforcement, mm -hmm. and uh, is just one aspect of those. Yeah. Good points there. Thanks again to our line panel as always this week. Great stuff. Be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. And catch any episode you may have missed on the PBS app or your Roku or Smart TV. Thanks again to Gene and our line opinion panel this past week. In our final segment of the podcast, we hear from the new Bernalillo County District Attorney, Sam Bregman. Governor Lujan Grisham appointed the longtime criminal defense and civil rights attorney to the position in January. And earlier this month, New Mexico and Focus correspondent Russell Contreras caught up with him to ask about his plans and priorities for the office. San Bregman, thank you for joining us here today. We oh, appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. To start off with, you've had a successful career here in New Mexico as an attorney, former prosecutor. What in the world would drive you to take this department take this position uh, in a prosecutor's office, the biggest city in one of the poorest states in the country, a department that's had a lot of troubles through the years, to say, I want to take this. What's going through your mind? Well, you know, given this opportunity um, by the governor was a great honor. And I got to tell you, the reason I decided to do this was, number one, I love this community. I've raised a family in Albuquerque. I've been in the criminal justice system for 30 years as a lawyer. Um, and this city has a crime problem. Um, there's no doubt about that. That's plain and simple. And the idea that I could somehow um, make a difference and give back to my community for, for the wonderful opportunity I've had to raise my family here and the fact that I love Albuquerque and I, and I want to help. And that's, that's really why I'm doing it. Did you have any reservations? Because you were a successful defense attorney. You've gone against so many prosecutors. I've seen it in action. Um, that you're actually going to step over to the other side and start going after criminals. Was there anything in your mind saying, wait a minute, I have to change my mindset. Can I do this? 
No, I have to tell you, my first real job as a lawyer was being an assistant district attorney in this very office many, many years ago. And I look back throughout my entire career, and that was probably the favorite job, my favorite job I ever had, because I felt like I could make a difference every day. Um, and so I went off into private practice. I, I have had a successful career there. But um, this was an opportunity that I'm like, you know what, I know this criminal justice system. I know how we need to collaborate together as a community uh, to, to change um, the crime situation in Albuquerque. So I'm all in. Just a few years ago, we were at 30-year lows on crime. Like everyone else, we started upticking on violent crime and property crime. From your perspective, before you got in here, what, what did you think was driving the crime in this city? Well, in the last few years, it's fentanyl, it's drugs, and it's unfortunate. Um, we have also a huge gun violence problem. Guns are very accessible all over the country, and I'm not, I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment. But at the same time, um, we have people that have no business having guns. We have teens, we have juveniles um, driving around with guns, with these extended magazines with 50 round barrel or drum, drum clips. It's just, um, it's terrible. But I think in large part, um, it's, it's fentanyl and it's drugs and, and, and we've got to get a handle on that. That's the underlying reason, I believe. No, there have been a lot of critics that say our bail system is also something that needs to be reformed. A few years ago, we were in the other way, where it, it was hard to get bail. You could go into jail for a, a small crime and not have the money to get bailed out. Now we've gone the other way, where some critics say we're releasing folks to it. From your perspective, what is the problem now? Well, let me just back up for a second. I agree with what you, what you explained as the issue before, and that is that people were not getting out just because they didn't have the money for bond. And, and that's why I supported bail reform at the time. But common sense, common sense tells us that if someone, for example, and this is a recent case, if someone has been convicted of killing another human being and they have done their time but are now charged again with homicide, there is no way that, sure, that person should be let out pre-trial. They should be detained until trial takes place. And I've got to tell you something. I was very much of an advocate for rebuttable presumption, what they, what they call rebuttable presumption, that says basically that individual I just described, there should be a rebuttable presumption that it's not safe for the community to let him out while pending trial. And so we are working together. We'll continue to work together. We weren't successful in the legislature on rebuttable presumption, but that's okay. I'm not someone that's going to complain about the way things go. I want to look forward. And we are working with the judiciary, all the stakeholders in the judicial system, to make sure that this community is safe, because that's the number one priority, is that people are not only safe, but they have a perception that they are safe, because both those things are very important to have a livable community. Now, some critics will say that proposal that was before the legislature, there was some constitutionality problems with that. Do you agree with that? No, I don't, but it's okay. I, I, you, we have a lot of lawyers out there that have differences of opinions. That's why we, we have cases the way we do, and that's why those kind of issues go up to the Supreme Court. I would have liked to have seen that case be presented to our state Supreme Court to see. Listen, all I'm asking for is to do the same thing that the federal system does. The federal system has basically a rebuttable presumption. And let's be clear, in no way am I advocating changing the presumption of innocence all the way through a case. However, 
there is a time when you can look at someone's record and you can see their conduct and their newly charged conduct and realize there is no reasonable condition that we can let that person out where the community can be safe. Currently, does your office now have the resources to present that evidence to keep those guys in, present which you, which is the rebuttals there? Let me say right off the bat, the district attorney's office um, that I've recently joined is just an amazing group of people. We have some career prosecutors, younger prosecutors. Um, we have great prosecutors in our office, and they, they bust their tails, quite frankly. They really do. They're working very hard. We, of course, need more resources. We have about 90 actual lawyers today in the office. We have vacancies of about 35. We have authorized up to 125 lawyers. Of course, we need more lawyers. But every DA's office in the state is down when it comes to their numbers of lawyers. Uh, but we do have the resources. We're, the resources is not the issue when it comes to pretrial detention motions. Overall, though, um, my prosecutors in this office have some, some big caseloads. And they're, they're having to do a lot of work. And the cases keep coming in, and rightfully so, because if there's crime, we should be arresting those people committed of crime, and we should be prosecuting them, and we will. I'm very committed to that. Um, I, I don't think of any instance in which we just don't have a resource to do our job. However, the caseloads are big when it comes to these prosecutors, and we obviously need more lawyers in the office. Do we have the detention facilities for this, for this possible influx? Because remember, a few years ago, we've had um, a consent decree over the, the jail because of the overcrowding and so forth. And we had, you know, thousands of folks sweltering in, in inhumane conditions. Do we need more resources in that department? Well, absolutely. I think the corrections department and, the, for example, the Metropolitan Detention Center is, is I, th I think they're at about 50% um, of where they want to be when it comes to corrections officers. Um, they have a lot of vacancies. Um, unfortunately, um, that's just the way the times are right now. I think they continue to recruit, and the county does a very good job at trying to manage with what they have. But I can tell you this, um, we are going to divert people away from prosecution for those that, for example, simple drug possessions that, that need to be diverted and get help before they get into the criminal justice system in a big way. But we will never hesitate to prosecute someone and ask for a judge to put them in, in jail or prison if they deserve to be so. And, and that, you know, managing the jail or managing the prisons isn't up to the district attorney's office. Our job is to prosecute. Now, you were in a unique position. You both defended officers and you both defended clients who um, were victims of civil rights violations by officers. So you're going in at a, a unique position. Now that you're a DA, and you're looking at the totality of where we are with our policing. Is there still reforms that police, the police department needs in order to be safe, fighting crime, but also um, honoring civil rights and really monitoring its excessive force behavior? You know, everybody's civil rights should be a paramount concern for everybody. Um, and, and when I say that, it's very broad, but civil rights are something that that I really hold dear uh, to my heart. I have represented people who've had their civil rights violated, but I'll also say something right now about law enforcement. There is not a tougher job in this country than being a cop. It is so hard because what they have to deal with on the street, and then, they ha then they're second-guessed afterwards, right? They're second-guessed both in a criminal case or whatever force they thought was, it was needed to use um, at the time. So my hat's off to every law enforcement officer out there. And 99.9% .9 of them, I think, do one amazing job uh, with how tough that job is. At the same time, we've had DOJ in here over the last few years, and I think the police department has taken a lot of steps for the better. 
but at the same time, um, it's it's not it's not something that that I'm overly concerned with as far as a police department in whole. We always will have in whatever industry we're in or whatever occupation we're in, we'll have some bad apples here and there. But overall, our police, every day we should be thanking them for what they do in this community. So you don't believe there's a structural problem? You believe it's... I don't, I don't believe there's a structural problem right now, no. I, I think we always need to be concerned. We give someone a badge and a gun and that, with that comes huge responsibilities. But I, I believe for the, for the vast majority of, of all police officers, they care about this community, they want to protect this community, and they're, they're doing one hell of a hard job every single day. Why did you only want to do this for two years? I know you didn't want to think about the politics of running for your election, but for you to implement some of the things you want, it's going to take someone to follow you after it, to have that same, to buy in. Why would you only go into this two years? Well, listen, I want to focus on doing the job. I think the best thing I can do is get up every morning as I am, energized because I love this job. Getting up, working with prosecutors, working with all law enforcement in a collaborative way, getting the DA's office working together with APD, with the Sheriff's Department, with State Police, with all of our federal law enforcement officials, and with the U.S. Attorney's Office, for example, working together to grind it out and solve this crime problem. And uh, I'm not focused on politics in the future. I'm focused on doing this job right now the absolute best I can. And I'm trying to move the needle. And when I say move the needle, you're not going to stop crime tomorrow. But what we can do is put processes in place in this office and throughout the law enforcement community in Albuquerque to really start to try and get a handle on the gun violence, to get a handle on the fentanyl crisis, to make sure we don't have kids in schools with guns. Um, those kind of issues I, I really enjoy working on. Now, everybody's going to have a report card after your two years about how Sam Bregman did, but how are you going to judge yourself after those two years? You know, the job of a prosecutor is to do justice. And it's not to get so many convictions. It's not to, to handle so many cases. It's to do justice on every single case. Um, and I believe my opportunity to teach young prosecutors as well as other prosecutors in that office um, what justice means. I will judge my success by how, um, how well our prosecutors are doing, not in convictions, but presenting a good case to a jury and letting them decide. Um, I will judge, of course, it would be great if we saw some crime numbers go down. I anticipate we will. Um, I anticipate that we are making a difference. We're going to go after these drug traffickers. Um, we, are going to, we are going to be relentless in our pursuit of gun violence and making sure people are held accountable. And, and at the end of the day, I want to make sure that the community recognizes that we are going to be insistent that people respect the rule of law. You don't like the law, you can go up to the legislature and change it. But whatever the rule of law is, we're going to make sure we hold people accountable for the rule of law. You've been a prosecutor, you've been a city councilor. What would it take for you, after these two years, two years are up, to consider running for an office like mayor? <laughs> you know what? We're going we're gonna to kind of dodge all the political questions in the end. And I appreciate the question, but what I'm going to focus on is telling you um, I think uh, the best thing I can do is just work my tail off every day on being a really good DA. But I used to call you twice on two different cases. Your mind can handle two things at, a, at the same oh, time. Oh, I think I could handle it yeah. mentally, but it's not what I want to do. I want to focus right now on, 
on prosecuting. So you're some. not thinking about higher office mayor at all? I'm not thinking about any of that stuff right now. I'm thinking, yeah. uh, and, and my wife would probably kill me if I did start thinking about if it. If you made the announcement right <laughs> now. <laughs> made what announcement right? <laughs> What are you talking about? I am focused on, on fighting crime. I really am, and that's, yeah. that's what I want to do. So, of course, you're the father of Alex Bregman, third baseman for the Houston Astros. Do you still give him advice on, uh, on hitting and playing ball? Well, I'm, I'm the father of three great children and now recently a grandfather, and I'm very, very excited about all that. When you ask me if I give advice to Alex about hitting, there is nothing possible that I could teach that kid about hitting that he doesn't already know. I will tell you this, though. His son, my grandson, um, I've got a track record when it comes to uh, – creating a Major League Baseball player. My son doesn't, although he is a Major League Baseball player. So I hope to have the opportunity to influence my grandson. So he should trust the process. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Politics is a blood sport. Your son is playing a sport that's at a high level. Does he give you advice? Oh, I learn a lot from Alex all the time. I learn about how he is, um, how, he ex how he has a short memory when things don't go right. You know, you have to learn that in baseball, right, for example. You got to fail and you got to get back up. So one of his great sayings is, "Get knocked down seven times, get up eight. I remind myself of that all the time. And sometimes that happens in daily. I mean, it happens to everybody every day, right? You get, you get disappointments, but at the same time, you grind it out and you work hard. Sam Bregman, District Attorney here in Bernalillo County. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who contributed to the podcast this week. Look out for an extra episode coming up on Wednesday. I had a really fun conversation with Albuquerque Journal sports writer Jeff Grammer about UNM basketball and how San Diego State's run to the Final Four could help the Mountain West Conference and the Lobos by extension. Even if you're not a big sports person, I, I still think it's an interesting interview. You can check that out coming out Wednesday. In the meantime, keep an eye on our social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and YouTube throughout the week. We'll be posting updates and other news items leading up to our show on Friday night. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, April 17th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.